0: All right, guys, so this is some very, very practical material, and we're dedicated to teaching all of the Word of God. So how this affects you or impacts you, uh, I, uh, I will leave to you. We want to always pray that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, that you're allowing him to apply this to your individual situation and to the situations of other people that are in your, uh, in your lives. So let's pray that the Lord will help us to understand this word and uh, then uh, let's dig into it. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather together on this Wednesday night and to study your word. Uh, Thank you that at least up to this point, we're still in this building. We pray, Father, that uh, you will continue to provide for us, that you will encourage people to, to give and to serve and to be faithful. I pray that you will open your word so that we can understand it. I pray that each of our hearts, whether we're here in this room, or whether we're watching online, uh, that we will be open to what you have to say, uh, that we'll be obedient because you don't ever speak just to give advice. Uh, when you speak, it is a command. When you speak, it happens. It is. And so, uh, you've given us free will, and with that free will, we can uh, we can cooperate with you, or we can cause conflict. And so, I just pray that we will cooperate with you and align our will with yours. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So now the apostle Paul, he's been dealing with these various issues that he's discovered in the Corinthian church. The first one was uh, back in chapter five, first Corinthians five, where he had discovered that they were tolerating a man who was having sexual relations with his father's wife. And as we said, at that point in time, that meant that this was his stepmother, essentially. Um, And the Apostle Paul said, no, that's not the way the church of God uh, is supposed to operate. Um, And he said, I'm not even there, but I've already made this judgment. I've already made this determination. You need to expel the immoral brother. And then he went into a discussion about lawsuits and how they were suing each other in court. And these are things he discovered. These weren't questions that they had given him. These were things that he had discovered. And then he talked about sexual immorality and how important it was to maintain sexual purity. And now we come to chapter seven, verse one. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry, but since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. Now, what does he mean by as I am? Well, we, we will get to this eventually. I have a, a lengthy statement from Barclay about Paul, but suffice it to say, Paul, by this point, was not married. It is likely that he had been married previously. Further, it is likely that after he gave his life to Christ, His wife left him. And you'll see instructions in here that he gives for spouses that are uh, prior to coming to Christ, um, they were married, and then one comes to Christ and one does not. This this relationship that is um, uneven, right? Uh, the, The so called unequally yoked relationship. And the Apostle Paul. Uh, very strongly discourages people, I believe this is in 2 Corinthians, not to get into one of those relationships once they're saved. But uh, in this case, he's referring to those who were already married and then one person got saved and the other ones didn't want to follow Jesus. He says, stay with uh, your your spouse as long as they're willing to uh, live with you. Well, apparently that was not the case with Paul. Um, what the reason that I'm bringing all that up is because Paul has clearly said, I wish that uh, each one was like, or all men were like I am. And that is he's not married and he's not seeking to be married. He's uh, he's celibate, right? So let's start with that first statement. Um, it is good for a man not to marry. Now he's not saying uh, that this is preferable. He's simply saying it is acceptable. It's good. There's There's a reason for it. And so we've got Uh, many ladies in the room as well. Uh, This, you can apply this to yourself as well. It's not just uh, regarding a man, right? Um, He gives his reasoning for this statement beginning in verse 25. And in short, uh, he doesn't have a command from Christ, but he believes that the time is short and that those who are unmarried may devote themselves to the Lord exclusively. He says, but since there is so much immorality, Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So he doesn't want men satisfying their needs uh, by going to a prostitute or by sleeping around, right? He says, no, you know, and and basically he's helping us to understand that this is one of the purposes for marriage. He says, um, this is a command predicated on the understanding that most people will not be capable of exercising the necessary self-control to abstain from sex. Those who are able to be celibate outside of marriage are better off unmarried. Jesus had something to say about this. In Matthew 19, and if you want to look it up, this is Matthew 19, verses 9 through 11, or 9 through 12. Jesus said, And so this is a command. This is Jesus speaking. Right. The Apostle Paul said this is a concession, not a command. But now this is Jesus. This is a command. Right. You'll you'll find there are times when the Apostle Paul says this is something that I'm telling you. And it's wise for you to listen to my advice. But it's not a command from the Lord. And then he'll say, but this is a command from the Lord. So basically he's saying, hey, this is how I advise you. You should listen to me. But it's not the Lord but now when you hear the Lord, then you say, okay, I do what the Lord says because Jesus is Lord, right? He's in charge, he's the master. Jesus said, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs, Right, so eunuch, someone who has disabled their sexual uh, capability. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So some have called what Jesus is referring to here uh, and what Paul speaks of as the quote unquote gift of celibacy. And uh, this is a gift that many would refuse, I think. Uh, The important point to remember is this. God must call you to either marriage or singleness. I've said this to people for years. You don't want this or that. You want God's will. So um, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't express your desires. Right. Right. But. The scripture says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Sometimes that means he will give you new desires. That makes sense? Because some of our desires, were they fulfilled, would be destructive. Others of our desires, if they were fulfilled, would be a distraction from serving God in the kingdom. And, you know, we have free will and sometimes, uh, you know, we just charge ahead where angels fear to tread and we end up in situations that we wish we had not gotten into. Um, and this is especially true when it concerns very, very large commitments like marriage, like a mortgage, those sorts of things. Right. And you, you, you know, like the military. There you go. There's three M's for you. Marriage, mortgage, military, big <laughs> commitments. And, you know, you can find it once you've made that commitment. Wow. I wish I hadn't made that commitment. And I tell couples before I officiate uh, the wedding, I I have a process that I follow. A couple comes to me and wants me to officiate their wedding. I say, all right, you need to have premarital counseling. You can either do professional premarital counseling. You're going to pay for it. It's going to last four to six weeks. Or you can do premarital counseling under a couple in our church. And there's a book that I recommend uh, called Before You Say I Do, and it takes 13 weeks. And I ask them not to set the date until they've completed the premarital. Yeah, guess how often that happens. It's just another set of hurdles (laughs) on the way. I mean, I've had people completing it like the week before the wedding. The, The purpose for it is to give you the time to ask questions, right? Because you're gonna ask those questions. And I tell these couples, you're probably gonna have some serious concerns by about six months in. And then you're going to have more concerns by about two years. And then along comes the seven-year itch, right? Well, different couples are different, but that's roughly speaking. I mean, I can't tell you how many couples I've spoken to, and they're like, after six months lying next to this Yehu over here, I just turned over and said, what did I do? (laughs) (laughs) You know? But it's a commitment. And that's why, you know, that's why older folks stay married longer, because back then a person's word is their bond. If you make a promise, you keep the promise. Today, we got no fault divorce, whatever, 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 right? Well, marriage is a two way street. So I come from a family of divorce. So please don't think I'm heaping the guilt on you, making you feel bad or whatever when you've been through these terrible situations. Uh, I know there's two people involved. Uh, and I know that you have to work through all of those things. But what I t- try to do here is teach you what the, the scripture teaches and give you the ideal. This is what we're supposed to seek to strive to follow. Right. Um, so. Uh, Matthew 19. Once again, or we're going to go up to the verses before the ones that I just read where Jesus gave the command. And. Um, Jesus clearly indicates that divorce is not God's will. Verse 4 of Matthew nine 19. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. I state this in the weddings I officiate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. There it is, right? There's just this hardness of heart, this gradual creeping in that happens. But it was not this way from the beginning, Jesus said. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman, commits adultery. This is so difficult to deal with, right? Because you sit down and you talk to people and they have these irreconcilable differences um, or there may be abuse that's going on. I never recommend a woman stay with an abusive man my understanding is this. If a man is abusing a woman in a marriage relationship, he has invalidated the marriage. Okay. And you don't need to be keeping yourself in that sort of situation. However, we need to take Jesus' comments here, his commands here seriously, right? Marriage has three purposes. Partnership, right? Two lives lived in committed mutual support, This is the friendship component of marriage. And I always encourage couples to develop a friendship ahead of the passion. See what always happens. I always say it always happens. What often happens is people fall in love. What does that mean? That means they desire each other physically, emotionally. Right? And so there's this burning passion. And if they're Christians and they're wanting to do the right thing, there's this rush to the altar. But what I really encourage is for a couple that, starting way back with the dating phase, I have taught for years what I used to call friendship dating, which means that you are involved with that person as a friend and only as a friend to begin with. Now, I know that there's that, you know, we're just friends and I'm not interested in you in that way. But friendship is not a, a, a lesser relationship than uh, the intimate relationship between a husband and wife. It's just a different relationship. But a husband and wife should also have a friendship because marriage should be a partnership. Number two is pleasure. And everybody understands that today. Um, and this is not merely just the physical pleasure of sexual involvement, but the, the pleasure of being together, of, of intimacy, that is emotional intimacy. And if the two people are, uh, are in Christ, there's a spiritual intimacy uh, there as well. Jesus said the two become one flesh. In fact, the Apostle Paul in the last chapter, and if you wanna look at that, um, what I taught two weeks ago, Uh, on sexual immorality from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 uh, is very clear on this statement. Uh, You don't just give yourself over to anybody else because the two become one flesh and Jesus uh, is living in you. And so that means that you drag Jesus into that situation, right? So one is partnership, two is pleasure, and then three is procreation. So the amazing thing about God's plan for intimacy and marriage is children may result. Isn't that phenomenal? Here's this amazing partnership, this intense, overwhelming pleasure, and people resent that a woman gets pregnant. There's something really, really wrong with us because that's God's plan. Now, I'm not opposed to contraception and those sorts of things. I'm just saying, when you consider God's plan, consider that life is the outcome, not death. If the involvement that you find yourself in sexually is resulting in depression, death, then it's a bad relationship, right? Uh, A bad relationship with the wrong person or with the wrong type of person, right? So here's the way, uh, I didn't just come up with these, okay? Here's the way that this is stated, partnership, pleasure, procreation. This is the way it's stated in the old Anglican common book of prayer. This is the 1662 edition. So this is gonna be some heavy King James language. So like really (laughs) tweak your ears. First, it was ordained for the, this is marriage. First, it was ordained for the procreation of children to be brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord and to the praise of his holy name. Secondly, it was ordained for a remedy against sin to avoid fornication, that such persons as have not the gift of contingency might marry and keep themselves undefiled members of Christ's body. Thirdly, it was ordained for the mutual society help and comfort that one ought to have of the other, both in prosperity and adversity, into which holy estate these two persons present have come now to be joined. So you see it right there. Procreation. Right, that was the first one. Remedy against sin to avoid fornication, that's pleasure. And then the third one, ordained for mutual society and help, that's partnership, right? Here is my definition of marriage that I read at every wedding I officiate. Um, And I, I have taken it from that statement from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer and also from the scripture. Our creator designed marriage to be a covenant bond between one man and one woman for life. The man and the woman become one flesh and what God joins together is not to be separated by any human being. God intentionally made two genders, each with special gifts and purposes. The woman was created in part from the man's body and every man is formed in a woman's body. Thus men and women possess equal worth. God's plan has always been for marriage to be the basis for family. It is His will that children be reared by a mother and a father. Above all, marriage is holy. It is a symbol of the spiritual, mystical union between Christ and His bride, the church. The church is comprised of all people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as God and received the Holy Spirit into their hearts. This is all clearly taught in the Christian Bible. With this understanding, marriage a marriage covenant must be entered into soberly and with significant forethought and commitment. That's what I say. So when I first did this study, it was 2015. And that is when the Obergefell decision went through the Supreme Court. Do you know what the Obergefell decision was? That's when gay marriage was made the law of the land. So at that time, I thought it was important to talk about that in this context. Um, I'm not going to do it tonight. Uh, I really made that point very, very clear. Um, Gay marriage is not God's design. It's not holy matrimony. It has become uh, the law of the land, but it's not the law of the Lord, right? Um, Now, I'm going to tell you this. Before that decision ever came down, I have always been in support of so-called domestic partnerships, which means if two people of the same gender, the same sex, want to pool their resources and live together and have legal status and legal rights, the same legal status and legal rights of a married couple, but it's not a sexual relationship, right? It is a partnership. Then I don't have a problem with that. And if you define, a civil union in the same way, then I don't have a problem with that, right? Because the problem with homosexuality is not that someone is drawn to the same sex. There's a lot of complexity to that. It's what you do with it. It's really the same thing the Apostle Paul is trying to teach here when it concerns uh, celibacy and marriage, right? there needs to be a willingness to control yourself and not just do whatever you feel like doing. We're sinners, we're fallen. And so sometimes people are drawn to sinful behaviors that are socially acceptable. And sometimes they're drawn to sinful behaviors that are not. But sin is defined by God, right? Sin is to fall short of the glory of God. So I don't just make it up as I go along. Your truth, my truth, my morality, your morality. No, there's what God has said and that's what we need to, uh, to follow. All right, so let's move on from that. The apostle says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So. This is the Apostle Paul telling married people, have sex, right? Um, Don't deprive each other. The only reason that he gives to abstain from sex while you're married is for the purpose of dedication to prayer. And even then, both the husband and the wife must agree to that. And then he says, come back together again. Sex should not be weaponized, should not be used as a tool for manipulation, and it should not be uh, used uh, abusively. Right. So apply this however you want to apply this. Now, he says something that's very difficult and it's especially difficult for us today. He says the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Well, he's referring to the intimate part of your body, the sexual part of your body. But it's it's the two are one flesh. So there is this overall give and take. Right. Um, It applies to other areas other than sex. One flesh means that these two people are looking out for each other physically, emotionally, socially. The wife has the right to tell her husband to change out of his stinky work clothes and take a shower before he lays down. She really does. The husband has has a right to tell his wife that the outfit she's wearing is going to attract the wrong kind of attention. He really does. She should be able to tell him to shave or to grow a beard. I really think so. He should be able to tell her that he likes her hair longer rather than shorter or shorter rather than longer. However, the partners must be more sensitive than assertive, especially when it concerns the sexual component of their marriage. Love governs the relationship, not rights and privileges. Hear that again. Love governs the relationship. And fundamentally, the definition I've given you guys in this church again and again of love is to act in the best interest or for the best benefit of the beloved, of the person you've chosen to love. So what's in their best interest? Not, well, honey, that's just what I want. I don't like that. No, that's not love. Love is what is in her best interest. Love is what is in his best interest. And if you're gonna know what that best means, then you've got to be attached to the Lord. You've gotta be in the word to understand what that really, really means. he says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, that is added there in the ESV and most other translations. Um, I think KJV just says to burn. And some people at, perhaps had interpreted that it's better to marry than burn in hell or something. It just means to burn with passion, right? So th- that's a very good translation here, uh, giving us an understanding of what is meant, not just a word for word. Although this is ESV and it's close to a word for word translation. All right, verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. Now, did you do you see what I said earlier? The apostle Paul says, this is what I advise. So the previous statement, to the married and widows, he says, hey, I advise you to stay the way you are. But if you can't, then go ahead and get married. That's his advice. Now he says, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. So this is a command, we gotta pay attention. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. This, again, is very difficult. And I'm glad that I don't have anybody in the room or know of anybody that's watching right now that's struggling with this because then there's a perception, oh, pastor's reading my mail, trying to tell me what to do. No, I'm just telling you what the scripture says, okay? Because what I see, i don't say see because I'm not seeing it right now at this moment. What I have seen happen all too many times is somebody is in the process of separating right, Uh, particularly women. I'm gonna take the lady's side here. Uh, She's in the process of separating from her husband and it's really difficult. They haven't been intimate for a long time. There's a lot of ruckus going on. There's a lot of hurt that's there. They've been separated for long enough that she has these other men that are coming in and being interested. So when someone who is gentle and kind and attractive or at least acceptable comes along, then she may find herself immediately attaching and he may be gratified and he's getting her on the rebound and it's just the wrong way to do a relationship, I'm sorry. Now I'm telling you, I understand her motive. She's hurting and this is comfort. She's also protecting herself from men who just don't seem to be willing to say, to take no for an answer. So I understand how that all works. But I'm telling you from the scriptural perspective, you know, from Paul's advice and from the Lord's command, when you make a marriage commitment, it's a lifetime commitment. I, further, when I do, uh, uh, I don't do premarital counseling, I just meet with the couple before, in the middle, and at the end of the premarital session to give the biblical perspective, right? But when I have those talks with couples, the first thing, or among the first things I say to them is, you can't plan this with a back door. You can't be thinking right now, well, if this doesn't work out, we'll just get divorced. You can't think like that. You have to plan for it to be permanent. And you know what? I've had couples that have just, they've taken me seriously and they've backed way off. Right? So you say, well, pastor, you're just kind of trying to scare them. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Because if they can hurdle that electric fence, you know, maybe they're made for each other. All right. So to the married and widows, it's good to be single. The apostle returns to the statement he made when he opened the discussion. And he'll discuss more again in, the later, in later in the chapter. Singleness is good. That's what he's trying to say. Sadly, the great majority of people do not believe that this is the case. Even for others. There is often suspicion when someone is older and is not chosen to marry. As if there's something wrong with the person. Our values should agree with God's representative who wasn't married and with our Lord, who wasn't married. I'm not defective or incomplete because I'm unmarried. All of us are incomplete if we don't have Christ in our lives. So if you find a wife or a husband, to be sure you have found a good thing, according to Proverbs 18:22, and receive favor from the Lord. But don't look for your spouse to complete you, but to be complete for the relationship to be God's will, right? You don't Look for them to complete you. You want compatibility, not completion. And that compatibility should be for you both to serve the Lord together. Don't make a rash decision to marry. It is a very serious commitment to God and one that he wills you keep for a lifetime. So here is a a little excursus on Paul's marital status from Barclay. So I kind of mentioned this earlier and uh, I'm going to go ahead and read what he has to say because I think you'll find it interesting, even though it'll take up a little more time. We may be fairly certain that at some time, now this is not me, this is uh, William Barclay. We may be fairly certain that at some time Paul had been married. One, we may be certain of that on general grounds. He was a rabbi and it was his own claim that he had failed in none of the duties which Jewish law and tradition laid down. Now, Orthodox Jewish belief laid down the obligation of marriage. If a man did not marry and have children, he was said to have, quote, slain his posterity, unquote, to, quote, have lessened the image of God in the world, unquote. It was said that seven categories of people were excommunicated from heaven, and the list began, quote, a Jew who has no wife or who has a wife but no children. God had said, be fruitful and multiply, and therefore not to marry and not to have children was to be guilty of breaking a positive commandment of God. The age for marriage was considered to be 18, at least this is for men, and therefore it is highly unlikely that so devout and orthodox a Jew as Paul, as Paul once was, uh, would have remained unmarried. Number two uh, reason that he believes Paul had been married on particular grounds, there is also evidence that Paul was married. He must have been a member of the Sanhedrin. Now i had heard this before, but it's interesting to hear Barclay's rationale for considering that Paul was at some point a member of the Sanhedrin, which was quite an exalted position, by the way. For he says that as Paul says, he gave his vote against the Christians. That's Acts 26.10. It was a regulation that members of the Sanhedrin must be married men because it was held that married men were more merciful. It may be that Paul's wife died. This is possible. It is even more likely that she left him and broke up the home when he became a Christian so that he did indeed literally give up all things for the sake of Christ. At all events, he banished that side of life once and for all and never remarried. A married man could never have lived the life of journeying which Paul lived. His desire that others ideally should be the same sprang entirely from from the fact that he expected the second coming to happen at once. Time was so short that earthly ties and physical things must not be allowed to interfere. It is not that Paul is really disparaging marriage, it is rather that he is insisting that everyone must concentrate fully on being ready for the coming of Christ. So let's continue with our passage. He says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. So that's fairly, uh, fairly obvious. And I'm not going to delve into that. Um, I, I mentioned before when he says, I give this charge, not I, by the Lord, this, this teaching is from uh, Jesus. And then the charge that he gives is the wife should not separate from her husband. In Malachi 2.16, this is uh, Old Testament prophets, right? It clearly says that God hates divorce. It is God's intent for you to keep your marriage commitment. And as we observed earlier, this is what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 19. So earlier, Jesus clearly said that short of adultery, the couple needs to stay together. And if you, if the woman left her husband, um, she didn't have the same civil right to divorce him as he had. Um, but that doesn't mean she had to stay with him. She could just leave him. And... But if if she left, then he was not to just go and marry somebody else. Or the scripture says he committed adultery. Why? Because you made this promise. And he says, and Jesus said, and the man is not to divorce his wife. So he could legally, you know, write a certificate of divorce, hand it to her and send her off. And she'd go back to her her father's house and live off the dowry that he had uh, given for her. But he says, no, that's not right either. But if it happens, you don't get remarried. That was the point. And why is that? Because this commitment is a lifetime commitment. All right. Um, I'm going to go ahead and delve into this next part and we'll see how far we get. We started late, but I'm still going to end at eight. To the rest, I say, I and not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Focus on that statement for a moment. God has called you to peace. You don't have to remain in an abusive situation. Verse 16, for how do you know wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know husband, whether you will save your wife? So now Paul handles this situation where the two were unequally yoked. Not that they entered into it that way, but that was the result after one partner came to Christ or began to seriously follow Christ and the other did not. The statement, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her and she should not divorce him. So um, I was reminded by this when I uh, first studied this passage, but in the early days of the Pentecostal movement, this is uh, the early 1900s, it became somewhat common to leave a spouse who had not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spoken in tongues. And this happened most notably among a number of prominent women who determined that the Holy Spirit was leading them to leave their husbands in order to become missionaries. Well, this is in clear contradiction to the word of God. The Holy Spirit is not going to lead in a different direction from the scripture. If If you say the Holy Spirit is leading you to do something and it's in direct contravention of the scripture, that's not the Holy Spirit. That, that may be your emotions, that may be some sort of conviction that you're receiving from some other source, but it's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to be in agreement with the Word of God, right? Um, so, uh, you know, th- these sorts of things happen. Uh, you are just really loving, living for the Lord, and your husband is like an albatross hanging around your neck. I mean, it's, there's no question, it's difficult. Um, what I'd say is just keep living for the Lord and keep praying for Him. And you're either going to, you know, it's either going to result in him getting saved or you're just going to wear him out and he's going to leave you. And then you can say, good. (laughs) And then you can just live your life, right? Um, The biblical model is to remain married. A Christ follower should not initiate divorce because of incompatibility. Certainly, it'll be a struggle, but nonetheless, we need to follow the scripture. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. Wow. Okay, this is difficult. What does it mean? The passage is not stating that an unbeliever is automatically saved because of their spouse. Right. It is teaching that the unbelieving spouse and the children are set apart and given special protection and opportunities because they belong to a Christian and that believer belongs to Christ. The believing spouse is given greater protection not from all of their own self-destructive choices but from the natural consequences of living in a godless fallen world. Saved as I've been trying to get across to you on Sundays uh, doesn't just mean saved from hell it means saved from a corrupt generation saved from a fallen world. So when there is leadership in the home that is focused around Christ and there's respect for that then yes, they're set apart and you're experiencing the benefits. Even if you're not a believer, you're experiencing the benefits of a Christian home because somebody in that home is enforcing that Christian morality and is living that good, healthy, positive life. You're also receiving the protection that comes as the result of that person being in Christ and you being in that person, right? So, uh, as I said Sunday, this is in heaven. Bad things happen every day and... Bad things even happen to good people. God is not the immediate cause of everything that happens. Um, But he does protect his people and he seeks to teach them. And so you're far better off, even as an unbeliever, to be in a Christian home than not to be, right? So for the sake of your children and in hope that your spouse will surrender to Christ, choose to remain married. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And again, this is very difficult when you're in the middle of that situation and this person is like, no, I don't want to hear anything. I don't want to hear that Christian stuff. And they're wanting to keep you from going to church. And I mean, it just gets difficult. I know these situations are difficult, but we don't know, right? We just keep praying. It's like our current situation here that I opened up to you guys. We just keep pushing. We pray until something happens, right? teaches us to be prayer warriors. But if, the other, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. So you don't have to go chase them. If they decide to separate, let them go. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. That's important to realize. God wants there to be peace. So when there's so much acrimony and animosity in a, a marriage and there's just the, the two will not reconcile, then you know, you don't want there to be divorce, but in the end there needs to be peace and there shouldn't be abuse and there shouldn't be ongoing wounds that are happening to the children and so forth. But we need to conduct ourselves in accordance with the scripture. And uh, that would mean that if I divorce this person that I don't seek someone else. Now, I'm not saying that God would never permit that, um, but all I can do is teach you what the scripture is teaching us, right? There are complexities that are involved here, but we need to aim for that, that standard, that mark, right? We don't need to be just constantly seeking to, uh, to live the, the bare minimum, right? To live a, I, I used to, when I used to teach teenagers, I used to call it an LCD life, right? Math teacher in the room, LCD, lowest common denominator, right? It's just, no, I just, you know, I just want the easy way. I don't want to do all that. I don't want to work at all that. I just want, uh, lowest common denominator, I just want, I just want to, work, you know, live it this way. We shouldn't be shooting low, friends. We should be shooting high. Shoot as high as you can. Seek to draw together with Christ and to follow His standard for relationships, for marriage, for sex, for all of these things that our society is mad about right now. And I don't mean angry, I mean insane, right? The direction that our world has moved when it concerns these issues, it's it's textbook insanity. I mean, people are not living as they were born any longer. They're allowing their emotions to drive them to these extremes. Um, As Christians, here we are in Life Well, are we called Life Well? Live your life well. Live your life the way it is supposed to be lived and let the Lord draw people to you as the result of that. Your fulfillment is not going to come in a man, women. Your fulfillment is not going to come in a whim, in a woman, men. It's going to come in Christ. And you don't want to be married and you don't want to be single. You want to do the will of God. Amen? All right. And those of you that are in this room know that I am really trying to live that out. All right? I am rolling up on 60 and I have not been married and I no longer make a plan. Right. I wouldn't turn it down if the Lord gave me clear direction, but he has absolutely not given me any such direction. So, um, yeah, uh, you you learn to live a different way. That's all there is to it. And it's okay. It is genuinely okay. Um, In fact, I've lived so long this way, I can't even imagine anything any other way. I think, I think if, if uh, you know I were to get married now, it wouldn't take six months before I'd be looking over there. It'd be like six days and I'd be going, what did I do? What did I do? Right? I'd have to have my own room that I could just go to and close the door and go, okay, okay. I'm preparing myself. All right. I'm coming out now. I'm coming out now. All right. No, I'm just trying to make light of things. It's a very serious situation. But I'm trying to help you to understand. And I know everyone pretty much, well, the, the two gentlemen here might not know what I just shared. Um, but those of you online might not be aware of that. Uh, it is possible to be single and not be flaky, weird, insane, um, perverse, uh, or, you know, have had some sort of chemical castration or surgery or something Um You just you need to seek God's will. That's what you want, because that is going to make you fulfilled. All right. okay, Wonderful. God bless those of you that joined us via the stream and uh, hope that uh, you will take that word to heart.